Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing very well. It is Wednesday night, and we are doing a live Q&A chat and audio uh, interview set from the kind listeners and supporters and curious innocent bystanders uh, to Free Domain Radio. And uh, you can find out more about this. It's been organized by Ian from PatriotPulse.com. This is in uh, anticipation of a grand, grand libertarian festival that he has got going on in New York. New York, babies! Uh, which is um, September the 10th, 2011. Uh, LFNYC.com. Uh, it's, it's Tom Woods. It's Adam Kokesh. It's Peter Schiff. I believe I'm a busboy there. So uh, if you have... Drinks that you want taken away, I will be circulating with uh, a, a big bowl. So I hope that you will be able to come by and support uh, everyone who's coming out to speak and support libertarianism, support Ian, and support the growth within your own brain about these wonderful ideals. So uh, thanks so much, Ian, for organizing this. Uh, James is running the board today. And uh, James, do we have, do we have any questions uh, or are we uh, 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 yelling into an echo of deep canyon nothingness? We most certainly have a question. We actually have a softball for the first question of the night. What is goodness? What is goodness? Softball, you say. Goodness. Um, I think goodness is, uh, in philosophy, I think it's very similar to the concept of health in medicine. So the concept of health in medicine is not perfect health, because of course there's no such thing as perfect health. Anybody who's over 40 knows that you pretty much always have some ache or pain at the moment. Uh, I have a, uh, a tiny little something in my toe that I can't get out of that I got while chasing Izzy around in the playground. Uh, so there's always some, some damn thing. You're never quite in perfect health when you uh, get older and even when you're younger. But there's still, just because there's no such thing as perfect health doesn't mean that there's no difference between being healthy and, uh, and being sick. And so I think goodness is a state of uh, health, a state of vitality, a state of happiness with regards to virtue. I don't think that if, if you're happy because you won the lottery, I don't think that people say that is goodness. I think if you're happy because you've done the right thing and you've done the right thing or have done a series of right things when it's hard to do the right thing. I mean, the reason we need nutrition is because chocolate cake take. The chocolate cake tastes a lot better than broccoli. And the reason that we need philosophy is because immorality uh, feels a lot better in the short run and gets you a lot more goodies than morality. Uh, if you're willing to to compromise your, your ideals, and I don't mean like little things here and there, but, you know, like major, major things, then you will get the accolades and the praise of a corrupt world that hates more than anything to see somebody standing up consistently for ideals. Uh, and, uh, you know, people have often commented to me, oh, Steph, you know, you're good speaker, shot guy. Uh, boy, you know, uh, if you were in politics, yeah, look, I mean, if I were in politics, uh, <laughs> I think I'd be doing pretty well. But um, unfortunately, that's not really something that goodness can allow you to pursue. So I think goodness is that, that state of virtue, which is not perfection. Perfection, the perfect is the enemy of the good, I think, and uh, the enemy of goodness. So I think goodness is a reasonable set of consistency in a challenging world with the virtues of, of nonviolence and respect for the respectful and paying people the, the, the whatever you owe them in terms of the justice or injustice of their actions. Because philosophy is, is about fairness. It's really about paying debts in many ways. 
Uh, and this is why I think ideal philosophy is closely related to ma a market economy. And so if somebody has acted with virtue and with justice, then I think we owe them admiration. If somebody has acted unjustly or, or in a destructive way, then we owe them um, a scorn or, or ridicule or whatever. I mean, I think there's, there's a, a light coin and a dyke coin, so to speak. Uh, and this is the same thing that's true uh, in the market world. If somebody honorably comes and buys a candy bar by exchanging something of real value for it, great. If they steal from, uh, from us, then we owe them a slightly different reaction. So, so I think goodness is a, a reasonable state of happiness that comes from a uh, fairly consistent uh, adherence to virtue, uh, if that makes any sense. Then they ask, what is virtue then? Well, virtue is consistency. Uh, virtue is, is consistency with, um, with reason and evidence. I mean, to me, that's, that's all virtue comes down to. Uh, now, I have a whole series on, on virtue um, that I put out sort of recently. If anyone can dig up the numbers and let me know, I would appreciate that. But, uh, but briefly, very, very briefly, uh, truth in science or truth in describing the physical world means that you follow the scientific method. So you have a theory that is logically consistent and accords with and hopefully predicts the physical evidence that you're going to get from that. That is uh, the, um, the ideal of, uh, uh, of, um, of science. And I think that's all good stuff that we want to, uh, to, uh, to recognize and enjoy and, and have. And so that is, is integrity, or you could say virtue, but it certainly is truth and honesty in the realm of science. Now, in the realm of, of uh, virtue, uh, in the realm of integrity, in the realm of philosophy, I mean, all virtue is, is conformity to reason and evidence. In other words, you have a theory of behavior that is consistent, that is applicable to me and to you and some guy in Poughkeepsie and so on. Uh, and not just made up, you don't just make up arbitrary distinctions like white guy's good, bad guy, uh, bad guy, uh, sorry, white guy's good, uh, black guy's bad or something like that. Or uh, people not in green costume, not able to murder. People in green costume, able to murder. People in a blue costume, able to steal. People not in a blue costume, not able to steal and so on. That's what you need to have to have virtue, to have consistency. So you have a standard of behavior that is what I call universally preferable behavior that is consistent and that accords with the evidence. Uh, and so that, to me, is what, uh, what virtue is. All right. Uh, somebody asks, what book has been the most influential for you to embrace a libertarian philosophy? Book or books, uh, I suppose. It wasn't so much books as it was magazines. It wasn't so much magazines as it was a particular magazine that had um, fold-outs. No, actually, let's let's take that question. Libertarian, seriously. Libertarian, libertarian sorry, sorry, I thought libertarian you said philosophy. libertine, not libertine. <laughs> okay, good, good. Uh, so, uh, well, I mean, I come through the the traditional route of the great smoky goddess of Russian reason, uh, Ayn Rand. Um, the Fountainhead remains one of my favorite books, and certainly one of the most influential, if not the most influential book on my thinking. And um, I think that Ayn Rand's personal life was sort of a tragedy, and I've really, really tried to learn as much as humanly possible from the mistakes of the giants who have come before me, uh, who I hope to <laughs> put another half inch on their stature. But um, uh, yeah, so, so The Fountainhead for sure. Uh, I, I would say, I mean, I love um, Plato's interpretation of Socrates. Uh, I don't love Socrates, but I love the methodology. 
that he worked with, uh, Nietzsche, has been enormously influential, in, influential on me. Aristotle to some degree, although I find his ethics kind of annoying because there are just so many assumptions in there. Uh, I think Nathaniel Brandon's The Psychology of Self-Esteem had an enormous impact on me when I read it at about the age of 18 or, or 19. I was working up north as a gold panner, and this is one of the books I'd stuffed in my backpack, and I just found it uh, wonderful for in, in terms of self-knowledge. I think self-knowledge is an underappreciated aspect of the libertarian philosophy. And libertarian philosophy is all about the market and, and government and the non-aggression principle, and these things are all great and fine and wonderful, but we're not so good at answering why people agree with us vaguely in theory and then oppose us viciously in practice. And that requires a knowledge of psychology. It requires a knowledge of the human soul, so to speak. It requires self-knowledge, I think, in particular. So um, I would say in terms of freedom, the real freedom that we can achieve is the freedom in our own lives. We cannot achieve freedom in the state. We cannot achieve freedom from compulsion in a social sense because we simply can't overturn the monstrous leviathan that squats on our necks, but we can achieve freedom in our personal lives. That has to do with self-expression and spontaneity and, and openness and honesty and, and integrity in our personal relationships. That is where the real growth, the real potential, the real gumption is in libertarianism. And I've gotten a lot more in many ways out of psychology than I have out of economics and philosophy, or economics and, and politics uh, for sure, and to some degree philosophy, but it has been self-knowledge uh, and uh, a commitment to honesty with myself, honesty with my loved ones that has given me the most freedom and security uh, in an uncertain world. So uh, so th those are it's very, very brief. I could sort of go on and on, but um, those are the major influences. So uh, I've certainly really, really enjoyed the writings of psychologists, uh, uh, everything from Love's Executioners to uh, Freud's got a wonderful a tripartite analysis of Christianity relative to the superego the ego and the id, which I found very compelling uh, on the analysis of dreams. Jung's analysis of dreams are fantastic. Uh, and so um, that's, that's where I've gotten a lot of my inspiration from. All right. Um, somebody asked a question. At what point do you feel philosophy, starts, philosophy actually starts to make someone dumber? What really is a shoe? Hmm. What really is as a shoe? <laughs> yeah. What, as an example... And my reading of the question, as an example, um, but uh, I, th I think possibly I know what he's getting at. Uh, oh, so I think I'd be like, so when somebody says, uh, "What is a shoe?" I mean, so when you sort of get these really sort of quote deep questions, um, uh, which don't seem to have much to do with life, and which everybody kind of gets, but which are maybe interesting to explore in an abstract sense, but don't really change anything about your life. Is that sort of what you mean? See if this gentleman responds in the affirmative. I'm going to start Feels answering like it. it as if I understand it, and then he can tell me if I'm cool. way off base. Yeah, look, I was reading a book by Paul Bloom. Um, I, I can't remember the name of it. It was to do with babies and, and, and philosophy. It was uh, something I was reading along with Alison Gopnik's The Philosophical Baby. And he was completely fascinated, I would dare say, neurotically obsessed <laughs> with this sort of question that when we look at the world... And we see a human being, we don't just see a bag of skin and bones and sense data, but we actually see them as a person. And then we look at a bowl, and because I had cereal right before this, we look at a bowl and we don't see it as component atoms or simply light reflecting off a surface, but we see it whole and complete as a bowl. And and how is this possible? And, and this is, I think, something that has fascinated uh, highly distractible philosophers throughout history. 
Uh, I think that kind of philosophy is pretty retarded. And uh, I'm fully open to the idea that that may be because I don't get it at some level. But I just think uh, in an age where we have uh, genocides and still even in the civilized, quote, civilized countries, we have wars and incarcerations for uh, innocent drug use and incarcerations for not paying your bills and people are being kicked out of homes that nobody owns when ownership is claimed. I think when we have, and this is just a tip of the iceberg, when we have a third of boys and two-thirds of girls reporting unwanted sexual contact before the age of 18, uh, when we live in a molestation-drenched society, uh, when children are still being spanked and hit, as if people imagine the non-aggression principle doesn't apply to children first and foremost, when we have all of these evils in the world, Worrying about how I look at a bowl and see it as a bowl, to me, seems like one of the most massive and brain-frackery schizoid distractions from the real job of the philosopher. Uh, it's like you, 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 you run into the emergency. You run into the emergency, and you're holding your one arm in your other arm because it fell off or something, and you're gushing blood everywhere. And... You're like, Doc, Doc, help me, help me, stitch me up, cauterize this thing, bind it, do something, I'm bleeding out, baby. And the doc says, well, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, I've often wondered how it is that we know that the arm is attached versus not being attached. Because you see, there are spaces between the atoms anyway. And so it's an interesting thing. And just like, oh, my God, will you shut the fuck up and stitch me up? That's what I think the world is doing with philosophers. So I think there is a time when philosophy becomes just a... Uh, a, a bit of uh, brain whackery masturbation, which um, we shouldn't be doing, those of us who are really interested in ethics. We need to be in there tangling and messing with um, the powers that be. So uh, if, that, if that answers uh, to some degree, I hope that helps. I think I've seen that scene in a, some science fiction, uh, you know, bad science fiction movie where the doctor just like, oh, yes, you know, so... Yeah, look, we, we may not know. We, we may not know all of the mental processes that go into differentiating a human being from a bag of skin. Uh, we may not know all of that. And frankly, given the evils that surround us in the world that we can actually do something about, who gives a shit right now? We have way more important stuff to deal with. As society rides its rapid way into economic collapse, as uh, the, the civil war called democracy uh, wrench, wrenches itself into its component atoms, uh, and it soon is going to become a war of interest group against interest group using the mighty bloody cudgel of the state to crush the skulls of their fellow citizens and pick their pockets. This is not the time that we need to worry about abstract questions. I would love to live in a society where we could sit around wondering why we don't look like bags of skin to each other, but that's not really the society we live in right now. Things are a little more fucking urgent than that right now. So that's what I sort of say to other philosophers. And unfortunately, they tend to almost exclusively be academics, which is kind of what you'd expect from academics. Absolutely. Somebody asks, is the U.S. debt really $15 trillion? Did they just pick a number out of a hat? Something tells me the real number is much higher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, because, look, there's... <laughs> I mean, nobody knows. I mean, obviously, when you start, start getting into numbers like that, nobody knows. Uh, the rounding error is more than my family. Uh, your family will make in 10 generations. So it's, that's all complete nonsense. So, uh, of course, look, there's a number of components. There is... Uh, the debt that has been accumulated, uh, which I think people have some idea of, there is the um, the debt which is going to be required to be paid back. I mean, people 
lend America money and we say or someone, someone lends America a billion dollars to get America through the next 12 goddamn minutes. So somebody lends America a billion dollars. They say, oh, well, we have a debt of a billion dollars. Well, no, not really, because you have to pay back interest. And, of course, America is able to pay back interest. It never hasn't paid principal back for decades. Uh, so it's like if you buy a $30 set of sneakers and you end up paying your minimum on the visa – Every month, they end up costing you like five hundred and fifty dollars or something like that. It's some crazy ass piece of money, uh, piece of money that you have to pay if you count into interest. So there's there's the, the basic amount that you borrow. There's all of the obligations that you have to pay down the road in terms of interest. Uh, there's the debt that matures in the future. If people have bought certain kinds of treasury instruments and you have to get you have to pay them back principal plus interest. That's all deferred into the future. So. Uh, that's all the case. But the most the most important thing is all these unfunded liabilities, all of these promises which governments have made to buy votes from people that they simply don't have the money uh, to pay for. As we all know, Social Security is just a goddamn Ponzi scheme. It is completely criminal. And, of course, it's completely unsustainable because you're going to have far fewer people working uh, re relative to the people who have retired. And... Um, uh, so, so you have all these underfunded liabilities. The, the, the estimate for the unfunded liabilities goes anywhere from $75 trillion and up. Uh, and this, of course, is completely impossible to pay. Uh, the society simply is – there's just no way. There's absolutely no way. You don't even need to lose any sleep about it. It's not going to be paid. There are going to be a lot of people who are going to end up with the short end of the stick. And because earlier I said that uh, we have justices to pay what people have earned, well – the dumb bastards who put their faith in the state uh, and who relied upon the state for their retirement and for their health care. I'm really sorry. I mean, I wish there was something I could do about it. But if you're going to hand your money over to the seediest bunch of thugs in the history of the world, which is anybody who's in the government, then of course they're going to take off with your money and they're going to leave a big fat IOU and they're going to get rich and you're going to get screwed. The history has shown this over and over again. So if you swallowed the propaganda and you got greedy and you took a whole bunch of stuff that didn't belong to you and then you expect the young people to come along and pay 70% taxes to keep you in your condos in Florida, well, it's not going to happen. And it's going to be very painful. It's going to be very ugly. And there's going to be lots of people who are going to get very angry and pretend that they had no idea, even though this stuff was a joke when I was 10 years old. We knew that this was all bullshit. So, um, yeah, look, it's not going to work. And there's going to be a lot of people complaining. And there's going to be a lot of emotional pressure put on other people to pay for all of these idiots. But it's not going to happen. And people are just going to have to find some way to get through. And, um, the, you know, as I've been taught by the elder generation when I was a kid, actions have consequences. And um, if you gamble with the government and you lose, um, sorry, don't come running to me. Uh, don't come running to other people. I mean, you gambled, you lost. You tried to steal and it didn't work. Well, uh, you should be lucky you don't end up in jail. Somebody asks, what's the difference between your perfect scenario of anarchy in, the, in a society and survival of the fittest? What is the difference between my perfect scenario of anarchy and survival of the fittest? All right. Well, I would say that... The one thing about anarchy, which is really just equality or, or trade, is that there is, no, there is no my perfect, right? There is no my perfect vision of anarchy versus your perfect vision of anarchy. I mean, if you think about a perfectly free market 
and somebody says, well, you, what's your perfectly free market? Well, there is no such thing because the perfectly free market is an amalgamation or an aggregation of hundreds of choices a day by billions and billions of people. So it's not my perfect free market. It simply is a peaceful and voluntary way of exchanging goods and services around the world to the betterment of all. So I think that the, I just hate to be nitpicky, but that's my job. <laughs> I hate to be nitpicky, but there is no my perfect version of anarchy. There simply is people who respect the non-aggression principle, who are not clubbing each other or using the threats of state jails to get people to do stuff, and respecting property rights. Well, I don't know what that's going to look like exactly. And anyone who says they do is lying. And anybody who's, even if they're right about one minute, will not be right about the next minute because things will change and grow so much in a society like that. So that having been said, I think you have to be really careful to bring biological metaphors to, to market scenarios or to political or social scenarios. So, I mean, there's an old praxeological argument that comes out of the Austrian school, which I think is great, which says if two people voluntarily exchange something that automatically, axiomatically can't get around it means that each one of them believes that he or she will be better off by doing that trade. Right, so um, if I have a pen and you have $5 and we voluntarily exchange, right, uh, you give me five bucks and I give you the pen, axiomatically we both believe that we're going to be better off by doing that trade. How do we know that? Because the trade happened. Right? The moment you put government in and you start forcing people and, and, and you have tariffs and taxes and, and trade policies and unions that are funded or enforced by the government, you no longer know any of that. So the difference is that in a free society, everyone who's trading voluntarily is doing so with the expectation that they'll be better off. And they may or may not be better off. You may have buyer's remorse. You may, I mean, but, but in the moment of doing the trade, they absolutely, completely, and totally believe that they will be better off, even if they're doing it grudgingly, even if they'd like it, slightly better terms. If they do the trade voluntarily, they will be better off. So trade is fundamentally not like biological competition, right? It's the old thing. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Well, dogs don't even eat, eat each other in nature, let alone capitalism. And so in nature, I mean, there are symbiotic sort of beneficial relationships for like the, the egrets on the back of the hippo picks off the ticks and also gets some of the food and the remoras that float around the shark's jaws uh, help clean the gums or whatever. Or, and they also get uh, some of the food that spills out of the, the shark's jaws and so on. So there, there are mutually beneficial. I mean, I, I'm a big bag of flesh that's carrying around uh, some bacteria that is using me as a big giant mothership to get to the next generation. Good for them. I'm glad that they do so because I like to fart. But in nature, survival of the fittest is win-lose. Generally, it is win-lose, right? One, one set of DNA wins over the other set of DNA. The, the lion eats the gazelle. It is win-lose, win-lose, win-lose. And in a free society, it's win-win. It's win-win. And so the only place where biological metaphors are appropriate is in a state of violence, right? So if a mugger comes up and steals your wallet, steals your wallet, it's win-lose. And you sure as hell don't want to do that. You don't want to give him your wallet. How do we know that? Because you've got a gun in your ribs, right? It's the difference between charity and theft is the gun in your ribs. And so the only place where biological metaphors can be usefully deployed is in a situation of coercion, whether it's individual crimes or collective crimes like statism, 
Uh, so, um, so I would be very careful about co-joining free interactions, uh, win-win voluntary trades with anything to do with the win-lose that, that's typical in nature. So I just wanted to sort of make, make that point. I don't think there's any similarity fundamentally between that, uh, those two situations, uh, the, the sort of survival of the fittest and a society based on free trade. And as you alluded to, uh, you know, survival of the fittest is a really reductive and not even a full picture of what actually goes on in nature. Um, more yeah, than- there's much more cooperation in nature than there is uh, uh, conflict. But sorry, go on. And, and direct competition. I mean, we have entire ecosystems where there's not there's competition between different species and competition between individuals within species, but there's also massive amounts of cooperation. And if it was merely co- competition, I mean, there are some really wonderful books written on this by Dawkins, where it's where I learned about this sort of thing. Um, you know, so I just write, you know, you know, no no money to Dawkins here. Just you know, I, but I recommend going to read that sort of stuff to get an idea of just the degree of co- cooperation. That there is in nature, um, you know, codependency, cooperation, you know, all these. Well, things, that's all these true, but it's, it's sort of. It, but in the long term, survival of the fittest, it is win lose, in that certain genes tend to die off and other genes tend to 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 sort of win out. So there is sort of a win lose in in his metaphor. He wasn't talking about nature as a whole, but rather the survival of the fittest approach. No, that is like true. Over the long that is term. true. Um, the the way, the way, uh, and not to spend too much time on this, but the way in that which that maps to us is. In terms of ideas, like so memes, that's, that's the way, contribution, right? Memes, yeah. yeah, yeah. In terms of ideas, like you know, there is a, there is survival of the fittest when it comes to ideas, and that has a lot to do with how the ideas attach themselves to survival. Uh, yeah, I mean, given how many bad ideas we fight in the world, survival of the fittest may not be the best way to approach ideas because they have propaganda well, and so on, right? No, that, no, no. But yeah, yeah. In terms of yeah. Okay. I don't want to get. I don't in, in a free look in a free society, I would agree with you. But we're back to uh, we're back to statism, right? Because there's indoctrination pounded involuntarily into the minds of children, which is a, a is a way of getting really bad memes to replicate or religion, right? These falsehoods that are inflicted upon kids against their will uh, is is another way that these things replicate. It's not exactly. It's not quite the same thing that works in genes because they're supposed to be sort of advantageous, whereas these are more parasitical. I would say. <laughs> Well, the only thing, and I'll just this will be my last comment on this, is that um, a bad gene, so it's, you know, a so-called bad gene, a, ba- a gene that has a bad sort of effect, can still attach itself to a really successful survival strategy. And propaganda is incredibly successful in the society that we have now. So that's that's what I would say about. That. Well, no, but propaganda is cancerous. Right, because propaganda destroys the society that we have, as we just talked about earlier. Right, I mean, America's hanging on the edge of a financial precipice, uh, and you're going to get uh, either debt repudiation, massive inflation, or hyperinflation, uh, and a significant reorganization of society. It is the state is so the state is successful in its replication, but it destroys the host. So it's not exactly healthy for human society as a whole. Or it's right. like a virus that right. replicates. And it's like, well, my tuberculosis virus is doing very well, which means I'm not, <laughs> right? Right, yeah. It has nothing to do with, like, the validity of the idea. But anyways. Um, yeah. or, the, or the long-term sustainability of it, right? Yes, that's exactly, that's exactly my point on that, yeah. I mean, as, as we know, right? I mean, um, again, I, I love this stuff. I find it fascinating, and we'll get onto another question in a sec. But uh, for sure, human beings, would, that you know, the, the, there was a gene that we, we got even bigger damn hits, right? But unfortunately, we, we then killed the moms as we were given birth, right? 
And so it, things can develop too far. And so this is why we have the sort of fourth trimester or the first six to nine months after birth where we should still be in the womb, but we're not because our heads would get too big to, to pass through the, uh, the channel of life, so to speak. So, yeah, so things can go too far, which then causes the problem. And that's certainly true of statism as well, though I think that's an inevitable uh, growth through that. Uh, I mean, the logic of the system is just that it has to grow to destroy the host. And that's more, that's more akin to a disease uh, or a cancer than it is... Um, I think the the sort of interspecies survival of the fittest stuff. I would definitely like to debate this more with you some other time. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. But let's let's get on. I, to I don't think question, we're on the same but... page. Right. Yep. Right. Um, okay. So someone asks, uh, what are your thoughts and observations on recent increases in the spread of liberty-minded ideas through things like Adam versus the Man and School Sucks podcasts and your show, etc. And my show. And my show, my show came first. No, look, I think it's fantastic. I huge respect for Brett, uh, huge respect for, for Adam. I think they're just doing fantastic stuff. And um, I, I mean, I think it's wonderful. One of the things that I love, love, love about the internet, it's, uh, it's the internet lays waste to excuses, lays waste to excuses. I mean, I can understand, gosh, geez, when I first started out in Liberty, there was like, what was it, Ayn Rand, Hayek, I guess there was Rothbard, though I didn't read him till much more recently. Um, didn't know anything about Mises back in the day. Uh, there were sort of a couple of other... Uh, I didn't know anything about Lysander Spooner at the time. Never even heard of him. And uh, But there were a couple of other Liberty Riders that you could kind of get your holds on. And I remember going to a Libertarian conference when I was maybe 17. So, dear God, that's like... That's a hell of a long time ago. That is a long time. It was almost 30 years ago. And it was pretty sparse. And you really had to dig. When I was in uh, university to try and find liberty-related material, it was hard. I mean, you there was no... Right? Whereas now, I mean, look at Mises.org. You can take an entire online course for free uh, to, to, to learn and to study this stuff. It's literally 10 seconds away from anyone with a computer and an internet connection. So... Nobody has any excuses anymore. Oh, we didn't know. Oh, I've never been exposed to anything else. Well, then you chose to. I mean, when I grew up in England, there were there were three television stations. BBC One, which had documentaries. BBC Two, which had bad documentaries. And, BBC, and, and ITV, which had Bond movies every three months when the entire nation shut down. And uh, so, yeah, it was kind of hard to get other information. But now uh, it's great. It just means that if I come across someone now who's never heard of libertarianism, it's a lot different than it was when I was 20 and came across somebody who'd never heard of libertarianism. Back then, completely understandable. Now, all it means is that you have the intellectual curiosity, not even of a hamster, but of a goddamn hamster's wheel or the shit that drops out of the hamster while it's running on its wheel. It means that people have stayed inside a very closeted, very tiny intellectually little world. And it means that they're very uncurious intellectually. Uh, and, and of course, libertarians, they're just sharper than your average mouse, right? They're just sharper because we're constantly facing counter-propaganda and, uh, well, just propaganda. Whereas if you, you know, if you're kind of lefty and you read the Washington Post and the New York Times and some Noam Chomsky or whatever, then you don't really face ideas that really challenge you. And so you just don't swim against the current. You just don't get to be that much sw stronger a swimmer. But libertarians, particularly those who are older, we spent so much time swinging, swimming against the current 
you know, we're like a cross between Mark Spitz and a dolphin and a propeller and some steroids. So uh, we've got some good intellectual muscles, which is why we can take apart people so easily when it comes to debating. I mean, they just haven't met people like us. So I think it's fantastic. And I think it's really separating people who are curious and intelligent and uh, want to think from people who are just running with the herd. And it becomes very obvious very quickly, which is which when you're dealing with people. All right, cool. So we have another question here. Um, time to break out some definitions, I think. How can morality be objective when morality is based on individual choices? Isn't morality subjective? Well, I, morality is not based on individual choices, um, by definition. Um, morality has universality. I mean, otherwise it's not morality. It's just personal taste. Right, so I like jazz, you like blues. Obviously, this is not a moral question, uh, unless it's that Kenny G shit, in which case it just becomes question of good versus evil, but we'll get into that another time. But uh, the, the personal taste, I like chocolate ice cream, uh, you like spumante ice cream. This is not a moral question. And so morality has to do with universality. And so morality is not based upon personal choices. If it is, then it's not morality. Uh, so and and you you can't reject universality. I mean, <laughs> you can try, but you'll fail, and not because of anything I say. This is just the nature of reality, and certainly the nature of debating. So you you can't reject universality. Uh, if you try to reject universality, there must be some standard by which you're rejecting it. And if the moment you take some standard to use to reject universality, you're trying to use universality to reject universality, which no worky, it does not work. It is a cosmic, truly cosmic fail. And uh, in the same way, you can't use logic to disprove logic, and you can't use the evidence of the senses to disprove the evidence of the senses. You, you just can't do it. Uh, and as soon as we accept all of that stuff, we'll be able to move the debate a lot further forward. If you want to <laughs> bore yourself into scintillating kaleidoscopic tears, uh, I have, of course, my free book on ethics, uh, Universally Preferable Behavior which some people get and some people get annoyed by, which is completely understandable, uh, is available at freedomainradio.com forward slash free. I'm sure there'll be some follow-up questions to that. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm sure we've just solved the entire problem of ethics in about three minutes, so no problem. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, of course, I'm just, you know, making stuff up. Um, no, there's another question here. Uh, why can't people accept that some things are unknown, such as the afterlife, beginning of the universe, the question of meaning? From where does this fear come? Why can't people accept that things are unknown? That there are some but things the afterlife, that are the afterlife, the, the afterlife is not unknown. The afterlife is completely known. There is no, I mean, just to take one example, there, there's no question about the afterlife. Because the only way that the afterlife could be a valid idea, even to explore, would be if we had a soul. If we had an eternal component of our humanity that could not be folded, stapled, or mutilated, could not be killed, existed eternally, contained our consciousness, and so on. And we know that that's not true, because none of us had an identity or any existence before we were born. That we know. I mean, if we could live after we died, then we would have been alive before we were born. That's, that's axiomatic to the, to the equation. And since I don't remember what 1965 was like, and in, indeed many parts of 1966 remain somewhat hazy, I remember 
uh, giant boobs. I remember a very, very comfortable series of shits and peas, and I remember some falls. But uh, really, that, that's about it. And, um, and, and really, aren't we all just continuing to try and recreate that existence in the old age home? Sans the giant boobs, I think they're extra. But uh, so, so uh, there, there's no question around that. Now, people say, well, what was before the beginning of the universe? This makes no sense. <laughs> Time began with the beginning of the uh, Saying what was before the beginning of the universe is like saying what's north of the North Pole. Well, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> there is nothing north of the North Pole. And so I think that people want to, they just really, really want to, want to, want to create a realm of the unknown, a realm of the unknowable. And they, they make up all of these, these places uh, and concepts which are unknowable, like uh, people misunderstand quantum physics and thinks that they think that there's something really crazy and weird about matter deep down, and 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 they they made they were before the beginning of the universe or 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 life after death or what they and and this is you know and I hate to be this blunt about it, but I have to tell the truth at least as I see it. This is because people have been told a lot of bullshit, and bullshit clogs up your brain. And rather than confront the bullshit in your brain, what you do is you create a pocket of the universe in time or space where you can put all of that crazy shit that you've been told, whether it was religion or, or, or nationalism or racism or patriotism or I don't know what the hell crazy people are told when they're a kid. But you have to have some place to put that if you're not going to tackle it within yourself. And so people want to create these pockets, you know, like they want to lift up this carpet, sweep their crazy under it, and then step on it like there's nothing there. So it's not that people have a problem with the unknown. People have a desperate desire for the unknown. And when you debate with religious people, you will always get this, right? They'll always say, ah, but you can't say for sure. I have to have a place called, called the unknown where I can put all the crazy religious propaganda that was jammed down my throat when I was a kid. Uh, and the same thing happens in politics, right? So uh, what about the roads? There's this big unknown. What about national defense? There's this big unknown. And the moment you can't answer some question, people say, aha, uh, knowledge is limited, and therefore I can keep my crazy shit in my head, and I don't have to uh, confront it because we've all admitted that there's a limit to knowledge. So right beyond the limit of knowledge, I'm going to put all the crazy shit I was told as a kid. And so uh, this is the great thing about anarchism or voluntarism or atheism is that I don't have to answer any of these questions. How will the roads be built in a free society? I don't have to answer these questions because I use the argument for morality, which is I don't care. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But people still shouldn't be sticking guns in each other's ribs to get something done. So I hope that helps. It's very much like the, the, null, the null zone when it comes to morality, where everything is reversed. Yeah. Right? Yes, um, that's an excellent point, James. So people will always try and create, so you, whatever moral rule you come up with, people will try and create some exception and say, you know, the old one, well, the Nazis come and you've got Jews hiding in the attic and they say, where are the Jews? And you say, I'm not going to tell you Nazi scum. Now here's a face full of phaser or something. <laughs> I don't know, maybe mixing my genres a little, but uh, they will say that kind of stuff. And then people say, aha, you see? So you can't even say that honesty is always a virtue. And therefore, I can go out and rape bats in the night or whatever it is that they want to do. Uh, and this, of course, is, uh, uh, is nonsense. There's lots of great arguments to the Gestapo question. Uh, sorry, lots of great answers to those kinds of questions. Uh, primarily that when you're, <laughs> you know, when you're not in a situation, morality is lovemaking. It is not rape. So uh, we differentiate between rape and lovemaking through the initiation of force, right? And uh, uh, virtue or honesty is like lovemaking in that if you're being forced, it ain't there. 
It ain't there. And so if you have Nazis coming up and shaking guns in your face, demanding to know where people are in your house, you can lie. You can tell the truth. You can lie. There's no virtue. It doesn't exist any more than lovemaking exists during a horrible rape. So uh, it's just not doesn't apply to the scenario. All right. Well, we have several more questions to go. Um, <laughs> I bet. <laughs> well, I can't because I haven't said anything controversial yet. So uh, let's no, uh, no, see no, keep digging, keep digging, point. please. Um, <laughs> so somebody asked, when a person stops dating to do self knowledge, how long is too long to be out of the dating scene? Is social interaction needed for self knowledge? Uh, it's a complicated question, and. Um, uh, but I, you know, and and it sounds like you know we're talking about a lot of abstracts. This is a very serious philosophical question because philosophy is really around self knowledge. So I really, really applaud the listener for this. It's a real, it's a real personal, very relevant, very important question. So, I mean, there's a number of factors. It depends on the level of dysfunction that you've experienced. I mean, if you come from a truly nutty background, longer is better. If you come from a slightly dysfunctional background, you probably need less time. Uh, so I think social interaction is necessary to heal traumas that were inflicted in isolation. And almost all trauma is isolating. Uh, one of the things that abusers, you know, whether it's parents or teachers or priests or whatever, one of the things that abusers, if they're abusive, uh, are going to do is to isolate you, is, is to fill you full of stuff that is, is embarrassing or shameful or they're going to put you down or they're going to make you feel isolated and put a gap between you and others. Because if you have a connection with others, you're very, very hard to abuse because abusers have to feel that you're not going to tell, right? So, I mean, if, uh, if uh, I don't know, someone molests a kid, they have to be pretty sure that that kid isn't going to go and immediately tell a policeman or something. So they have to make sure that they either create or maintain or exacerbate the isolation that uh, people are feeling. So if you come from a dysfunctional background, then isolation is the main problem. I don't think you can solve the problems that are caused or exacerbated by isolation through being isolated. So I think community is important. Uh, but of course, when we're brought up that way, we have a difficult time judging community. We can get involved in communities that are themselves dysfunctional. So you have to be very careful. Find the right people. I mean, I think the Freedom in Radio community, there's, I mean, hundreds of people I could name off the top of my head who I would, you know, trust uh, with, with my life. Uh, and so I think there's lots of great people in this. There may be great people in other communities. I don't know. I only have time for, <laughs> for this one. But, um, you know, find the right people. Uh, get a connection. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of talk therapy, as people know. I won't bore you with that here. But, uh, but that's, that's a little different from dating, right? So get a community. Once you can sustain a good friendship, then I think uh, it's a good time to start thinking about dating. But I would go for the friendship first myself. All right. So we have... Another question here. Do you think that trying to get Ron Paul elected is a worthwhile endeavor, or do you see everything going to shit in the next couple of years? If you do see it spiraling out of control, then what is the scenario you envision? Yeah, that's a long question. Look, I, I've done the Ron Paul thing quite a bit to death, and, and it, it sounds like it's specific to Ron Paul because he just happens to be the, the foremost libertarian politician. And first of all, Ron Paul is not going to get elected. You know, let's, let's be blunt about that. He has no chance of getting elected. Um, the, and, and the reason for that is very simple, is that 
at some point, and I've read a couple of Ron Paul books, so forgive me if I don't know enough about this. I've also asked his supporters for more information about this, haven't received any. I want to know what exactly is going to be cut. So he says, well, I'll cut this. I'll cut the military. But I need to know specifically and exactly what's going to be cut. Now, either he's not going to say that, in which case he's not close to being elected. But if he gets close to being elected, people are going to start to press him on this and say, look, Dr. Paul, what exactly are you going to cut? Give me the list. Now, the moment he publishes that kind of list, then um, uh, every state entitled asshole on the planet is going to rise up and rebel against him and dig up dirt against him and make up slanders against him and portray him as crazy. Remember what they did to... um, Oh, Lord, people, help me out. What was the guy who ran against... Clinton and um, and Bush. Perot. Perot, that's right. Perot? right. Yeah, I remember Ross Perot, right? He was the head of a, a, a huge software company. He was very productive. He was a small little Texan, if I remember rightly. And he did have a bit of a fun voice, no question about that. And I, I remember one of his quotes... Uh, uh, they said, uh, Perot has no experience. And he's like, that's true. I don't have experience running up a $400 billion debt. Boy, remember when that was a, something you could say with a straight face. But um, people made fun of him. He, they made fun of him on Saturday Night Live when he because he had these charts. And, you know, maybe they, I guess they looked a bit cheesy before computer graphics or whatever. But this guy was talking some sense. I mean, this wasn't that long ago. It was 12, 13, 14 years ago or whatever. And he was saying, you know, we're heading for a financial meltdown. We are heading for a huge crash. And there's too much debt, both uh, personally and institutionally and and certainly uh, at the government level. We've got all of these um, uh, entitlements that can't be cut, or at least nobody seriously contemplated cutting. We have all these unfunded liabilities. I mean, he drew it out like the movie movie rollover that I still distinctly remember seeing on a plane flying to Africa when I was 16, which talked a lot about this financial crisis. This stuff was all known years ago. And uh, all the cluster frack squid-headed idiots in the world just made fun of his voice and his funny little charts. And it's like, oh, these idiots, these idiots. And these are the same idiots who now are saying, where's my retirement money? I have got no retirement money. Well, if you were at all involved with making fun of Ross Perot, I think you should be thrown out of your ass with that one thin dime. Oh, no, I tell you what, we'll print off some charts and you can have those. Some of Ross Perot's charts, you can have those. So, um, I'm sorry? So use them as blankets. Yeah, you could use those as blankets. Because, I mean, the man was speaking sense, but nobody wanted to listen. Everybody made fun of him. So he's not going to get elected because in the moment you start threatening anyone's entitlements, everybody's going to start rising up against you and do whatever the, it takes. Uh, and so he's not going to get elected. Is he going to educate people? Yeah, he's going to educate people. But my approach is that it's important and useful and helpful to be educated about economics and politics. It's fundamentally completely irrelevant to saving the world. The world is going to be saved through two things. It is going to be saved through the peaceful raising of children so that they're no longer frightened of authority and no longer broken by aggression and control and mastery and dominance and power and insults and spankings and hittings and beatings and rapings. And all you get to raise children peacefully if you want a peaceful world. It's that simple. And the second thing is that the, the, the greatest power in the world is the power of ostracism, is the power of ostracism. And until liberty activists are willing to at least start considering the process of ostracizing people who support the state, I don't mean right away, I, you know, but not 10 years after you start the debate. Uh, if you believe something is evil, like the state, and you understand and accept that that evil can only continue because of people's support for it, 
then your relationship to the state and the people who support the state in your life is like the relationship the bank has with the bank robber and the guy driving away the getaway car for the bank robber. Well, there's no way the bank robber would have robbed that bank if he didn't have a getaway car. And there's no way that the government would exercise the kind of power that it does or any damn power at all if people didn't support it and praise it and salute the flag. And this is true for all aspects of state power. So until we're willing to think about ostracism, until we're willing to damn well act on our values in a social context, then not really much is going to be changed. It's going to change. So talking about the Fed and auditing the Fed and, and cutting the budget and, and repealing the welfare state and cutting the military-industrial complex, and it's all nonsense because people aren't going to look for what we say. They're going to look at the values that we can actually act upon in our own lives. If you define something as evil, if you understand that the state is evil, that has profound, profound implications on your personal relationships. It is not abstract. It is not over the hill. It is not in another pocket of time. If the state is immoral, and if the state is evil, and if the state is destroying society, civilized society, peaceful, voluntary society, then people who support that state are bound up in that immorality. And I don't believe that you can be in a relationship with anyone whose actions and beliefs you define as evil. Evil is a very powerful word, and I use it as sparingly as humanly possible which is unfortunately not that sparingly in the society that we live in. So I think that people like Ron Paul because they feel that someone's going to save them. They feel that pounding some lawn signs is going to set them free, but it's not. It's not. Society is the sum of our personal relationships, and it is our personal relationships that we need to bring our values to, not to a checkbox in a booth. Very good, very good. We have uh, three more questions, time willing. Um, so I don't know, I think your hour might be up for Patriot Polls, but I uh, don't see Adam yet, so keep going until we're done. All right, yeah, yeah, just, um, uh, just uh, yeah, Ian, just we'll pull, pull the plug when, when you want to go back, just let us know. So go ahead. Cool. So somebody asks, uh, how do you see a transfer of resources from today's wealthiest people into the free market in a future theoretical anarchic society. Do they or should they have more interest in keeping the current system propped up or in creating a free society since they would theoretically be a step ahead in a totally free market given their current accumulation of wealth? Well, I believe that when you're young, you want stuff and when you're old, you want people. And you know, there's there's lots of people. It's you know that that song, the the cats in the cradle. You know that the the guy um, goes spends all his time traveling, doesn't have any time for his kids. And then when he's older, he wants to spend time with his adult kids, but they don't have any time for him because that's all he's taught them, and so on. Well, I think that uh, people who are richer tend to be older, and they care a lot about their relationships. I genuinely believe that there's enough love in the world that if people have to choose between stuff and love, they will generally choose love. Not always, not consistently, not perfectly, but most people, I think, will choose love. And what that means is that we have to give people that stark contrast. Look, if you want my company, if you want my society, if you want my love, if you want my respect, then you have to give up the support 
for violence that characterizes statism. You have to give it up. You have to let go of the gun. You have to put down the gun if you want to be in my life. You have to put down your praise of the gun. You have to put down your support of the gun. You have to put it on safety. You have to throw it in the ocean and you have to bury it under concrete because we have to drive this demon of violence out of the human heart and out of human society. And the only way to do that is through confronting people in their personal lives with the effects of their choices. We all understand this in the past. I mean, if you were into equality between the races and a friend of yours was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, then you would face a choice. If you could stay friends with him, clearly you don't give much of a shit about the equality of the races. And if you really do care about the equality of the races, then you can't hang with racists. You just can't. It undermines everything that you claim to believe about. And so you should give up your beliefs or you have to give up those who act in opposition to your beliefs. That's a fundamental equation. So once we do that, people will give up their stuff to stay close to their loved ones, to, to understand and to accept. And they will thank, you know, society needs an intervention, for Christ's sake. It needs an intervention where people say, look, you need to stop your self-destructive behavior, which is what people say to an addict in an intervention, or I'm done with you. I'm done with you. I'm out of your life. Society is addicted to violence. It is addicted to control. It is addicted to power and to the unearned, fundamentally. And we have to say to people, look, I love you enough. I love you so much. I love you so much that I cannot, I cannot stand by while you continue to support this core evil in society because it is destroying your soul. It is destroying our world. It is destroying our future. It will destroy our children. You have to stop. And this is the commitment that I have that I'm putting myself in front of you between you and this grinning, gaping demon called the state. I'm putting myself between you two. You can go through me, but then you are past me and I'm done with you if you don't stop with me. Once we do that, how the stuff that people don't want as much anymore gets distributed is not that important. Right. That's it. And I think, I, no, I think there's, sorry, there are two more questions. Um, I think this is related to the previous question. Uh, saying, I know that you have dedicated most of your life for the cause of liberty and a free society, but if a free society was achieved, what would you do? Oh, I would have a great time. <laughs> I would have a great time. Look, I, uh, I came out of the art world. I came out of the acting world. I was a playwright. I was a director. I've written half a dozen novels. I would go straight back into art, and I would make beautiful art. I became a philosopher because I understood that the values weren't in place in society to appreciate the art I was creating, which I'm still very proud of. And so I would go straight back into the art world and not look back. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. All right. So, we have a last question. I think you're going to like this one. I've heard Steph say that he tells his daughter the truth about things like Santa Claus instead of going along with the fantasy. I'm sorry, doing can a lot you start that again? I just, sorry, sorry, James. You said you missed the start of the truth. I didn't quite understand that. Can you start the question again? Oh. Uh, all right. I've heard Steph say that he tells his daughter the truth about Santa Claus, things like Santa Claus, instead of going along with the fantasy. I have been going. I've been doing a lot of childcare and reading up on different philosophies regarding childcare. Rudolf Steiner founded Steiner Schools, Waldorf, also known as Waldorf, Waldorf Schools, and he emphasized the importance of creative play in the development of imagination, or for children to be able to develop critical thinking and creative problem-solving skills later in life. I was wondering if Steph ever engages in fantasy with Izzy 
and what his thoughts are <laughs> on this topic. That's a great question. Uh, I would say that conservatively, at least half my day with Izzy is fantasy play. Absolutely and completely. I mean, I, I could go through the list of everything. She's currently into uh, some some cartoon characters, and she will say, okay, Steph, you're this character, and I'm this character, and sometimes Mommy is that character, and we play, and we, we just make up stories, and we, you know, we'll, she's really fascinated by culverts. I've been explaining to, to her at the moment. So, you know, we'll peer in the culvert. We'll, we'll make up what's in there. Uh, do you see a spider? Uh, you know, wh- which way is he going? And, and does he want us to chase him? We'll, we'll play, and all. we build forts in the living room, and we we run away from giants and and so it is it is a continual process of, of fantasy play which is completely delightful and 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 absolutely in charming wonderful engaging and challenging uh, part of parenthood right because you, you have i mean she loves making up stories she loves it when i make up stories uh, uh you know we'll see something uh, innocuous uh, you know like a ball rolling down uh, somebody's lawn and we'll make up a story about it uh, you know the ball is 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 trying to get away from a robot and you know we'll play it so i think that is completely wonderful it's it's an absolutely delightful and it's a very conversational way of engaging and i it, it erupted a couple of months ago and it's just been continual ever since and i i just think it's completely wonderful um but but she knows that it's a story. I mean, of course, right? Like, so, so uh, you know, she's really fascinated by doctors at the moment. And so, you know, she'll hold up a, a napkin to her face and she'll be a doctor. And, uh, you know, then I'll have gotten some sort of illness and she, you know, I, I need some medicine. And so she has this gesture. She'll, she'll go and grab something from the air. And now that is the medicine. Uh, and uh, if I'm in a sugar coma, she needs to <laughs> because I've had too much sugar, she needs to break a piece of celery and hold it under my nose, which comes out of some movie. And so she, but she grabs these things from from midair. She knows that it's a fantasy. Uh, she knows that it's not real. So I don't need to tell her. By the way, there isn't actually any medicine here, right? Um, she now knows that when she makes a mud pie, she she shouldn't actually eat it. She should only pretend to eat it. And so when I want some, she now knows that she don't need. She doesn't actually put it, the mud in my mouth, that she just pretends and, and all that. So, so she's perfectly aware of the difference between what is real and what is not real. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, while we're engaged in the story, it's completely immaterial. But she knows all of that stuff, right? So if she, you know, if she has a successful time on the, on the toilet, we're toilet training her at the moment, then she gets uh, a juice popsicle. And, I mean, if I, if I grab one out of thin air and give her to one, give, give her an imaginary one, she's like, no, I want a popsicle. <laughs> she knows the difference. But if we're playing and giving one of her dolls a popsicle, she'll just grab one out of the air and pretend and all that. So uh, I think it's completely wonderful. I assume it's essential. I assume it's a very important part. I certainly had a very strong fantasy life when I was a, a child. So um, I, think it's, I think it's just great. All right. Well, that's all the questions I have in the queue. So I well, I thank everybody. Nice. Just fantastic questions. Uh, just great. I mean, I'm. I mean, you know, I, this is, I guess, a little bit outside the the purview of the regular uh, Freedom Made Radio uh, listeners that's coming over from Patriot Pulse. Um, but uh, I just, I just want to say, I, I'm I'm just continually blown away by the quality and perceptiveness, intelligence, and openness of these these questions. I mean, every day that I do this, and I've been doing this for a quarter century. Every day that I do this. I'm just reminded of how brilliant everybody is, how everybody is a genius, how everybody is a philosopher, and how amazing all of these questions are. So I just really wanted to reinforce that and uh, to to point that out and uh, to just say I, I truly am uh, honored and, and humbled and incredibly grateful 
that people find it worthwhile to toss a few questions my way. I hope that um, my answers aren't too alarming or annoying, or if they are, that you'll at least ask yourself why, hopefully rather than <laughs> lambaste me. But uh, if you want to lambaste me, that's perfectly fine. But um, I just hope that you'll ask if, if, if the answers bother you uh, why. And, um, of course, I've only given sketches to certain answers here. So if you want more information, I do a Sunday show every 2 p.m. I will be in New York um, September the 10th for a speech and a chat with all interested parties. I will be at Libertopia. I think that's October 21st, libertopia.org and uh, a couple of other places. So thank you, everybody, so, so much for your time, your interest, and your truly, truly stellar genius-style questions. And have a great night. <laughs>